Recording started. Welcome to tonight's main Chexit discussion group call for tactical sovereignty. Like I always say, this beautiful Sunday, the first day of the week, not the seventh and not the Sabbath. Although, uniquely, tonight is Super Bowl Sunday. I happened to go past a place here a few minutes ago, and it was during the halftime, and I was watching some of the performance of the halftime show, and oh my gosh. I mean, I'm not an old fuddy-duddy or anything, but there is several things that I saw within about 45 seconds of watching that were just profanely disgusting. That if, if your child did it, you would slap them. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think, yeah, uniquely so, I, I, this being Super Bowl Sunday, going back in previous Super Bowl halftime shows, uh, there's a lot of exoteric information that is brought forward to people and they don't really realize it. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with the terms exoteric or esoteric, um, esoteric are things that uh, kind of lay be behind the scenes. Nobody really talks about it, nobody really sees it. And, and then you get into exoteric information and the exoteric is, I uh, think of it more as exposed. It's information that's more in the limelight. A few more people actually do know about those things, whereas the average person necessarily wouldn't. And so over time, we've seen a lot of that kind of stuff with these halftime shows. And so that it's kind of unique then, I guess, for uh, tonight's episode. So I was going to be talking about some things that we see in different programs, like self-help programs, that hold a lot of exoteric information in them. They're using a lot of these things from the ancient mystery schools. And I think mystery schools, it sounds like a vague term to a lot of people that don't know anything on the topic, but these mystery schools go back in time and memoriam. I mean, you're going back to ancient Greece, Egypt, times the days of Babylon, uh, that were the beginnings of a lot of those schools. I think one of the better-known ones today would probably be the uh, Masonic Lodges, which claims to go back to the time of the building of the Temple of Solomon. That's where they kind of claim a lot of their roots at. So that shows really how far back these things go. But at that time, and even around the turn of the century. I mean, I've been doing a lot of studying lately on the first century and uh, the end of the previous uh, century one BC as well. And around that time, there is a whole lot of these mystery schools that existed at that time. And they didn't really refer to them that much as mystery schools. Uh, they were just call it like private study groups, put it that way. And some of these private study groups even developed into small communities. And one of these ideas of small communities that some people may be aware of uh, due to the work of, say, Dr. Tabor or Dr. Eiserman. Uh, Dr. Eiserman was very influential in having some of the scripts exposed that were found in the Qumran caves. And that, that was at 
one of the Essene communities. And people kind of think of the Essenes as some kind of maybe backwards group, maybe almost in a way of like a monastery that kind of lived according to their own rules off to the side. And because of that, even at that time, that there was claims made about them that weren't necessarily true. Um, things referring to like celibacy, that they lived a total monastic lifestyle. And a lot of people may be like, oh, no, that's not true. They were, they were like monks, you know. Well, <laughs> according to <laughs> what information on a surface level that has been shown to people, yeah, we, we would tend to believe that and stand on that. Although if you really get into them and really research it, you find that's not necessarily so. If you have, for instance, a, a movement that you believe in, let's say it's even like the Essenes, a religious-based movement, and you wholeheartedly believe that what you're studying and what you're learning and teaching to each other is the absolute truth, and this is, you know, the facts of life. This is what it's all about, you know. You are not going to live a total monastic lifestyle. Because guess what? That means your community at some point is going to age out. You're going to die off. And then what happens to everything you've learned, everything you've studied and tried to teach, it's all going to disappear. And there has been excavation that has been done, uh, particularly around the Qumran caves where these scenes were. And there have been graves of young children and younger people found, which would definitely point to the direction of, no, they, they were not living a total monastic lifestyle. They weren't living a life of 100% celibacy. Uh, there was reproduction going on. And that, that would only make sense if, you planned on your movement, uh, not just getting traction, but being long lasting. Because anything anybody starts up, you know, they want it to be long lasting. That's one of your goals, always. Now, at the same time, uh, people may point to the apocalyptic thoughts of the Essenes. And we need to realize, though, that everybody in the first century and into the second century, these people, even the disciples, all believed that they were living in the last days. And that's why the disciples even asked Yeshua, you know, what will be the signs of your return? Well, why did they want to know the signs of the return? They want to know the signs of the return because they expected to see it in their lifetime. And they wanted to be able to know what they needed to be looking forward. They wanted to know what to be paying attention to. And so that's why they would ask that. And all those people thought that. Uh, even in the writings of the so-called wannabe Apostle Paul, uh, he even made references to the same thing. And he told people, you know, basically it's too late. Uh, it, it's not time to be getting married or giving in marriage. You know, there's too much to do right now. The, uh, the time is short. And... That's kind of why he was preaching against marriage in that respect, is because he, he didn't foresee that there was going to be an existence going on even a hundred years from then, or let alone one or two thousand years later. 
uh, he even felt at the time was very, very near. And so, of course, all those people at that time did. And I think people can today can even attest to most of the people around them within the churchianity movement feeling the same way. I know growing up in uh, the 70s in church, you know, there's people always pointing to things in the news saying, oh, you know, uh, we're seeing uh, the birthing pains talked about in the book of Revelation. And yeah, the time is short. When people have always thought this for years, so we can go back even past one or 200 years, and there's been predictions of when this return was going to happen. Uh, people even put dates on it. Uh, people would go and gather at a mountaintop. They'd sell all their stuff and go gather at a mountaintop because this is the day he's coming back. And then later on, the leader would decide, oh, yeah, you know, I think I, I must have missed it by a few months. Uh, it's actually going to be this date, you know. And that's been the beginning start of a lot of different other religions as well, a lot of other different belief systems. But I, I believe we, we need to pay a little closer attention to a lot of the writings and things that were happening, say, first, second, third, fourth, fifth century AD. Because what you're going to find is really a lot of the information that we see on the surface level today. Like I mentioned last week, you see a lot of these things talked about in the self-help groups. And I find it interesting after reading a lot of these writings, uh, to me it's painful <laughs> to sit and listen to some of the self-help groups. I think they aim at a particular clientele, a particular following. And it's normally a group of people who they're looking for a better life, uh, the way their life going right now literally sucks. <laughs> and what they're really looking for is some confirmations. Uh, they're looking for some hugs or they're looking for some support. Uh, that's really what they want. Uh, they need a support group and that's what they're looking for. And that's where they're finding it at. Um, to take even people joining, for instance, like Weight Watchers. Okay. I don't even know if they still exist, but that, that's what that was formed for. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous is formed for. That's what Narconon was formed for because people with similar problems could come together and that would be your support group. Unfortunately for a lot of those, they've been nothing but a path to actually um, enable the problem that they had. Uh, if, you know, you move to a new area and uh, you're addicted to drugs, but you don't know any of the drug dealers, just go to Narconon. Uh, go to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the, the, the people that really want help and are seeking it and that will do the inner work for it, we'll, we'll find the help in those groups. But if people are looking for something else, yeah, you're also going to find those enablers there as well that will point you in the direction of where the drug dealer is or whatever you're looking for. So, you know, we have to realize that mankind all through time has gathered together in these groups more as a reason really for support and of course we all like to be around like-minded people that that's very important to all of us and when we look at some of these mystery schools well, which these people are doing the same thing they're looking for like-minded people 
uh, people that are, are looking, you know, to seek the light or whatever you want to call it. They're doing the exact same thing because you're going to find support and you're going to find ideas and things that are going to help you in your quest with some of those groups. One of the things I find fascinating when it comes to the Essenes, though, is that biblically speaking, if you're reading scripture, you get a very narrow window into the days around the first century, uh, especially, for instance, if you're reading the Gospels. You aren't really getting a big picture. And a lot of people look at um, the temple at that time, and they're going to see you know, who it was, for instance, that the disciples were battling against. And, of course, there was Rome. There was the state government. And then there was also the Pharisees and Sadducees. And people see those as the two main groups revolving around the temple. But when that really was not the case, that there wasn't just the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was a third group of Jewish people, and that would have been the Essenes. So you had three groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. Uh, the only difference with the Essenes compared to the Pharisees and Sadducees is that they weren't holding, for instance, positions within the government or within the state, uh, like some of the other two groups did. Uh, they didn't hold offices within the temple, such as the Pharisees and Sadducees were. They were more of a separatist movement. I guess maybe you could look at them as uh, the original separatist movement even prior to Martin Luther. But uh, they carried an enormous amount of weight within the community. And one of the big things that they were known for was preserving their writings. Um, people need to realize that the Essenes weren't guys that just huddled in caves and studied scripture. But they, they were the ones that actually preserved a, a lot of those scrolls. And what they would do at that time, if, if you notice even today, if you see Jewish writings on their websites and there may be a mention of God, they'll put G slash D. And people think, well, that's because they didn't see it to be correct to pronounce his name and so that they use that instead but that they did that in their writings for another purpose and that was because they felt that if the name of the creator was written on a piece of paper that eventually that piece of paper is going to end up becoming garbage and might get thrown away or might get burned and so if his name was written on it then that would seen as being sacrilegious towards the creator if something with his name on it was thrown in the garbage bin or was burned or um, desecrated in some way. So that's why you'll see it written like that. Well, at the same time, there was a lot of what we would call today extra biblical texts that were written. And in those extra biblical texts would also be 
the name of God. And so they didn't see it right, even though maybe they didn't like those texts, they didn't agree with those texts. They, they wouldn't throw them in the garbage, they wouldn't burn them. And what they did is they actually had a graveyard that they used to take those scrolls, uh, put them into jars. Does that sound familiar yet? Put them into jars, and they would bury them in this graveyard for the scrolls. Um, they had a particular name for it, and I've just got so much on this information, I haven't written it down. But which reminds me as well, you know, you know when I started going through the info in the last several days on this that I had, I quickly realized that much like the past four episodes that we did, the rabbit hole series, which I, I should know at the onset of those, that it wasn't going to be a one episode deal. It was going to take some time to get everybody's mind wrapped around it. Uh, in the same way, that's what I immediately realized looking at this and seeing what has happened with humanity today is that this is not going to be able to be explained in uh, one episode of 40 minutes or an hour, whatever the case may be. I try to keep them relatively short just because, hey, people take a look at uh, different YouTubes or recordings and they, they see something that's a couple hours long or three hours long. They, they don't even bother starting it. And if they see something that's shorter, though, an hour or less, uh, then they may offer some time to it. Personally, I see those long ones, and what I like to do is listen to the first half hour and then skip ahead and listen to the last half hour because it seems like, I don't know if people's hearts or their tongues get loosened, but in that last hour of those real long ones, you really find the meat of the topics that they're discussing. So talking about the mystery schools this evening, and um, we're starting out right now talking about the Essenes. I think that this is going to be best covered in at least two parts, three, probably a minimum of three episodes. Because looking at everything that I have written on all of this, it's just, gosh, it touches us in so many levels and in so many areas that to do it justice it really can't be done in a one-time bang, thank you, ma'am, situation. I think it needs to uh, really be scoped out and, and delve into the information around it to maybe help other people connect the dots easier for it. Because once you see it in its entirety, it's like a whole lot of lights come on, a lot of different dots start connecting. And that's what's happened with me over time. Um, looking at some of this knowledge and, and going and writing it down in its own in its own books or its own notebooks, so it all stayed together. <clears throat> it eventually, ended up drawing drawing a picture or putting a puzzle together, and it's it's like you know grabbing one of those boxes of a thousand piece puzzles. And you start putting a few of the pieces together, and it's like, holy smokes, you start really seeing what the picture is going to be. You know, and that makes it even more interesting to keep looking and keep looking. And last week I had mentioned that so much of what we hear from these self-help groups 
comes from the ancient writings that I, I think it'd be appropriate that I do need to touch on that this evening. And what happens, what I've noticed that looking at stuff over time and seeing what's taught to people and realizing the basis of the information, you, you have to comprehend what occurs over a long period of time with any information. It ends up, parts of it end up getting eroded away. Very often it's the most important parts that end up getting eroded away. And then you end up with just some loose, disjointed pieces uh, of the story. And then over time as well, especially like in the self-help area, uh, a lot of people then start hypothesizing on their own or using their own life experiences to kind of try and tie together some of those disjointed pieces. Uh, unfortunately, there is a strain that runs through a lot of those disjointed pieces that, that you know glues them together and a lot of people don't want to talk about that glue because that glue does something that most people don't want to do. Uh, it makes them need to commit to something, uh, particularly to maybe a particular belief system. <clears throat> and much of this really has to do with everybody's real origin um, comes from their creator because only there are all those pieces going to make sense because that's who put all this together in the first place. So when you start hearing a lot of these other people talk and that they all have a different viewpoint, say, on a, a relationship, say, you know, how to keep a marriage together and things like that. If you're losing that glue that, that's really used, um, you're going to miss the whole point. Because for number one, in a relationship, for instance, like marriage, well, well, that bond came from one source. And no, that bond did not come from the state. It was not done under their authorization because you went down to the courthouse and filled out a request for a marriage license. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that's what the state wants you to believe. And unfortunately, that is what a lot of people believe. And that's why the majority of marriages today fail is because the state has been their glue. That piece of paper has been their glue. And that wasn't really where the uniting of a man and woman came from. That came from the creator. And it was established for a purpose. And if that purpose and the other purposes that was established for it, if those things are not completed, then you're not going to have a strong bond there. You're going to have a very weak bond, and it's not going to last very long. It's it's like a house built on the sand is what's happened. So when looking at a lot of those, there's some things that really stand out. And it all boils down to one thing. And this is something I wrote a list out of the many things that are not taught in schools today that should be taught that would make everybody's life a heck of a lot better. 
And one of the first things on my list was relationships. Because just about any situation you deal with is all going to boil down to one thing. One word. The word relationship. Or if people don't like that ship word, then fine. Just call it your relations. Or, you know, how friendly you are with each other. How kind you are to each other. I'll look at it from that respect then. And what you're going to find is the writings of the Essenes on this topic. And I've put it on Facebook. I know a couple of people have checked it out and uh, messaged me, talking to me about it. And it's also going to be in the description box uh, down below in this YouTube when it gets posted to YouTube. But these are called um, mirrors of the Essenes. And it's called mirrors for a reason. Because so much of what we have inside of ourselves and the things we don't like about ourselves are the same things that we will see in other people. And we'll use that as an excuse, especially, you know, you hear people that like to talk and gossip about other people. And they're like, oh, that, that guy, he's always screwing around on his wife. Well, you know, think back. Maybe you're having a situation with not being faithful as well. Uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear the saying, it takes one to know one. That right there nails it totally on that. Because when you're seeing things that you are also responsible for in your life, it's easier to spot in somebody else. I've known a lot of people through life that are always accusing other people of stealing from them. Oh, this guy stole this, or that guy stole that, or I, you know, I can't find my shovel. I think my neighbor stole it, you know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> uh, only to encounter the fact that when you go with them to the grocery store, that they happen to slip a couple of candy bars in their pocket while nobody's looking. Wow. No wonder you think everybody's stealing because that's what you do. And like I said, um, this list of uh, seven mirrors of the Essenes will be down in the description box here. But I'm just going to briefly go through the list of these seven mirrors. And I firmly believe that anything that is found from old texts and old writings, we are probably just getting a portion of it. There may be a lot more to it. So when we look, for instance, at the seven mirrors of the Essenes, you may be studying it and going through it and going, well, what about this? How did they miss this? They should have talked about this situation. Or they should have talked about that fault in, in different relationships. And they didn't bring it up. Well, the reason why is because we might just be getting a fragment. You know, uh, they might have had the 70 or the 700 mirrors of the Essenes. Who knows? But when we look at our relations one with another, we have to realize, like I said, everything we encounter has to deal with a relationship. Uh, like I've mentioned before about hiring an attorney. Uh, when you're hiring an attorney, you are not just hiring him. You shouldn't at least just be hiring him because he is good at arguing, he's won a lot of cases. You know, 
Um, uh, future results might be based on past performance. So we can't look at it from that attitude. Technically, and if you talk to anybody in the corporate world, they'll tell you this. Whenever you are hiring an attorney, you are hiring them because they have an excellent relationship with the court or specifically maybe with several judges. That's what you're buying into. You're not necessarily buying their service. You are buying into their friendship that they may have with people inside of the system. That's at least what the smart people do if they're going to hire an attorney, big if there. But these seven mirrors of the scenes, as they've been presented to us, <clears throat> would be the first one would be um, a mirror of the moment. And mirror of the moment, kind of a nutshell on that is that we're going to get back immediately uh, what we give out. So, you know, if you give somebody a nasty look on the street, guess what? Mirror of the moment, they're going to give you a nasty look back. That's a very brief overview on that. Number two would be the mirror of judgment. Um, that we attract what we judge. And that's what I mentioned earlier as well about somebody that is always claiming that somebody's a thief in that kind of situation. We're going to get back exactly, you know, what we are ourselves and what we do ourselves. And so that's a good example right there of that mirror of the Essenes which was number two, the mirror of judgment. Number three is a mirror of our lost love. And this does get into, you know, our more personal relationships, our husband-wife situations, boyfriend-girlfriend situations. And a lot of times with this mirror of lost love, uh, what we may be seeking from a current or future mate, something that we had lost in another one or felt like we had lost in another one. Number four, the mirror of compassion and obsession, or rather of compulsion and, and obsession. And with compulsion and obsession, kind of in a nutshell, um, it, it's regarding behavioral patterns is when you're looking at compulsion and obsession those can get hugely deep I, I think any one of these a, a good amount of time it really could be applied to each one if we are being really introspective and looking within our lives and within ourselves as to their applicability number five the mirror of sacred relationship, which I find kind of a fascinating one because this has to do with um, a divine relationship and, and dealing with divinity in so many different cultures or even, you know, look at all the different religions. They, they've got a different concept of divinity. And you think back, Looking at things easiest for me is from the churchianity perspective because that's what I grew up with. But if you look at the words of Yeshua, 
he says, you know, I am in you and you are in me, you know, and well, we're supposed to be looking on the inside. And I think that's a really good example of this divine relationship, the, the sacred relationship, which is the fifth mirror. Number six is the mirror of the dark night of the soul. This would deal with negativity, uh, would deal with things that haven't been so positive that have occurred in our life. And this will also deal with depression. And depression, though, is mostly always triggered by some event or, or something that somebody is going through. And normally a culmination of various events that have occurred to somebody's life. And they, they feel like uh, they're on a hamster wheel of some sort. You know what I mean? And, and no matter how hard they run or whatever, that these same things keep happening in their life. And so, you know, the mirror of the dark night of the soul is, that's another deep one to look into and realize why these things are occurring. Uh, number seven would be the mirror of divine order. This is something that people that they don't really, it takes time to comprehend this. It took me a long time to comprehend this. We see so many bad things that happen in life, so many good things that happen in life. We often hear, you know, why do good things happen to bad people? And this is a perfect example of that. This is part of the divine order. This is part of the duality of this world. Would we really enjoy something that's good if we hadn't also experienced the flip side of that situation? Uh, would you really enjoy, you know, the warmth of the sun if you've never experienced the bitter cold of winter? So we, we have to realize, that, and one of the things that the, what the Essenes were bringing forward uh, that I found interesting that I wrote down, they said that all is perfect and good, even if it seems evil or wrong, because it's all necessary. It's all things that need to occur in our life. I found, you know, maybe on a humorous note, I was mentioning that the Essenes were into preservation. They did a lot of what people would refer to as alchemy. And these seven mirrors that I just mentioned, there's also spiritual alchemy that's done. Most people think of alchemy and they think of, oh, making gold out of lead. Uh, because that's what a lot of the old alchemists did. They would claim that they had this power, they had this ability. And many of these people were even hired by kings and queens. Uh, they would even be given rooms in the mansion and be totally financed and given their own workshops and stuff by kings and queens because these kings and queens felt like um, they were able to perform some sort of alchemy, uh, whether it was making gold out of lead or even developing the secret elixir of life that would give them their longevity, that would give them their eternal youth. 
people were even often suckered into hiring these. I mean, you look at them in a way, this would be an area of magic of magicians. And so obviously uh, these people fit directly into this whole mystery school thought because uh, the mystery schools were not just about the physical things, but they were also mostly spiritual things going on there. And so the, yeah, the, these seven mirrors are a type of spiritual alchemy. And it's something that everyone needs to work on. And it's something that, like I said last week, that this system has totally kind of moved people away from comprehending uh, is this spiritual alchemy and this inner work which to me is the real great work. This is the great work, is self-perfection. It's something that's always been strived for, and it's something that nobody will ever attain unless they realize that there is no true perfection. You can better yourself, but people put that word perfect on such a high pedestal that it becomes an unattainable position to reach. So it's that, you know, proverbial carrot, you know, in front of the horse. You know, he's constantly chasing that carrot and never be able to really get a hold of it, but it's going to keep the cart moving forward. And we can't do that. Uh, We have to realize that even with perfection, there's certain levels of it. And we can't, find ourselves being upset or depressed or as we feel like we're falling short and missing the mark on perfection. Yeah. Even scripture says, you know, that nobody's perfect. There's none that is good. No, not one, you know? So come on, you're told how long ago about that. And so we need to be able to accept it. One of the things when you look at um, back in time, and that for some reason, it's like it's oh, a new discovery or something. <laughs> a few years ago, they found uh, pots of honey in Egypt. And they were amazed that the honey was still good. It was still edible. It hadn't rotted or, I mean, it, there was nothing really wrong with it. They were like, oh, my God, this is like a preservative or something. And I remember when I heard about that, I just kind of laughed to myself. It's like, Really? This is like a discovery. I mean, I, I had always thought that this was just kind of something that had always been known. That's why honey is one of the best things for you to eat, one of the best things for you to consume. I use that instead of sugar in your foods or, or in your drinks or your tea. Use honey instead. Uh, instead of going out and buying honey nut Cheerios, buy regular Cheerios and just put real honey on them. Why not? It's going to taste so much better because you're eating real honey nut cereals, real honey, instead of something that is flavored (laughs) like honey. But too often, we accept the things that are fake and temporal for what is real. We'll take the easy route way before we'll take the real route, which may be a harder route. You know, granted, it's harder to go out and buy the honey when you buy your cereal 
and then remember to put it on there when you go and make your bowl of cereal. Yeah, that's a harder route, but it's way better for you and way healthier for you. Uh, this was even found, I, I guess I call this a, on a humorous note, <laughs> but it's kind of a morbid humorous note, uh, Herod. And I can't really say which Herod it was. I believe there's numerous Herods. Uh, we hear a lot of these names from antiquity, and we think Herod, and boom, everybody, especially maybe in churchianity, they only think of one. They, they think of the Herod that uh, had all the baby boys killed under three years old to try and get rid of a possible new king that was coming along. But, but there's multiple Herods, just like there is multiple Caesars, just like there's multiple names of you know, people of Augustus. And we have to realize that when you're looking at some of these people, hey, there might have been like, like Constantine. I think there was 10 different Constantines. So whenever someone hears that a Constantine had done something, it's no, it's not that one necessarily that one single Constantine from the Council of Nicaea. It, it, it could have been uh, one of his sons or grandsons or great-grandsons down the line, or somebody completely different by the same name. Uh, those, were just, uh, those were just titles. So many of what we hear and think of as names, they are really only titles. And those titles at that time, for those people, actually meant God. Those people were their gods. They, they looked at the Caesar or Augustus as a, as a god. Back to Herod, though. Uh, Herod had a woman in his life. It was the love of his life. Um, it was this unattainable prize that, that he saw. And he desired so bad you know, to, to be with this woman. And she wouldn't give him the time of day. But, of course, him being king, um, it's not necessarily the wisest thing to totally blow this guy off like you would maybe a bum at the corner bar. This is somebody you needed to treat with a little more respect. And she did actually end up marrying him. Well, the problem Herod had within this marriage is that she wasn't too readily available to offer her wifely duties, I'll put it that way, which of course, was very frustrating for him. Um, uh, I imagine back in that day, if he had popped a couple blue pills and thought he was going to have a good night with this woman of his dreams and then was shot down, uh, yeah, he got very frustrated. Well, after she had died, uh, this became an opportunity, I guess you could say, for Herod. Because he kept her body in the castle and he embalmed her. And she was embalmed with honey. I've heard counts of six, seven, eight years that she was kept embalmed in honey. Uh, but I eventually guess that that is how uh, he finally got his uh, sweet taste of a fun night with her, put it that way. 
So, like I said, it's kind of humorous, but in a morbid way as well. And so, at that time, you know, alchemy was a big thing. Preserving things were a big thing. Like I said, the Essenes, you know, preserving these scrolls in the jars were, were a big thing. And I think a lot of the knowledge that was kept, people really need to explore. Uh, check out as much as you can from the scrolls that say, like uh, Dr. Eiserman was able to preserve, or e even read some of his writings on this. People today are dissuaded from going out and reading what's called extra biblical or non canonical script or text. And I've brought this up before. I had asked a teacher in school, a gentleman who had been through Bible college. I asked him, hey, because I actually had a Catholic Bible with me that day. Kind of shocking. And I was like, hey, look at these books you know, that, that are here. So why don't we have these in our version you know, of the Bible? And he said, well, ultimately, those uh, were not canonized. Which to me was confusing because this was supposedly a, a Protestant church, Protestant church school, which I, I've since learned is nothing more than Catholics that are protesting Catholicism. They, they still hold a lot of the Catholic faith, a lot of the Catholic ritual. We're, we're talking about mystery schools, right? They hold a lot of the ritual. And when you get in and start researching a lot of these different teachings of the different mystery schools or mystery religions, you're going to find that they all hold some main elements in common. Uh, you're going to find that they all hold the element of water, the uh, element of fire, element of oil, um, references to the spirit world or spirit realm. Those four things are always going to be found in all of these different teachings. And I recommend that people get out, you know, look for some of these. Um, off the top of my head, I'd say uh, the secret book of John is a good text to read. Another would be the secret book of Lilith is an actually excellent, excellent book to read. Um, Hermes Trimagistus, the Corpus Hermeticum. Very interesting to read. Uh, in fact, you know, when, when you go and read like the Corpus Hermeticum or the secret book of Lilith, you're going to find texts in there that looks like somebody by the name of Paul might have just copy and pasted into some of his letters. Especially with the Corpus Hermeticum. It talks a whole lot about the carnal state of man and our, our carnal origins. And so you know that this is going to be one of the things that Paul would have been studying at the feet of Gamaliel would have been this text. And this is where a lot of these ideas came from. You know, if whatever download he had, supposedly, on the road to Damascus must have been a massive freaking megabyte-style download that he got in just a few minutes to have compiled all of uh, the writings that he did, making up the majority of the New Testament. 
and and with these mystery schools as well at the same time uh, i think a lot of people feel it may be like aside from say maybe like the masons or their organization for women the rebecca's uh shriners maybe some of these other ones that these mystery schools have all kind of gone by the wayside they've fizzled out over time which i would say is the furthest thing from the truth um these schools may have morphed into different names uh, of course their memberships have changed over time but a lot of them have gotten maybe not necessarily a whole lot larger but they've become a whole lot stronger yeah, they've become a whole lot more powerful if you look at all of the different things that you see today uh, maybe stuff I would say it can be kind of centered around self-help, uh, but not necessarily. Um, we're going to find, and I wrote down a list, which I'm not going to find now, but these different organizations of, say, for instance, light workers, or people talking about um, space, or Palladians. Uh, and uh, there's going to be some truths in some of those, right? So I don't want anybody that's involved with one of them. Go, oh, what are you doing? Shooting them down? Da, da. I, I'm not doing that. I, I'm saying there's going to be truths and there has to be truths because to carry any message, false or not, it has to be attached to truth. Truth is an excellent vehicle to carry any message because these Truths will be things that pretty much everybody accepts and can identify with. And since, oh, you're tying your stuff around those things, then evidently your information must be as true as the information that you're using as a vehicle for it, which is kind of the way the mind thinks. Uh, but there's so many of the, all these little, and uh, next week uh, I'll come with that list that I gathered because it's so easy to find. I mean, you, you can just scroll through a search. Um, uh, uh, Gaia is one of them that comes to my mind. And there are so many offshoots from just Gaia alone. Of course, there, there's one central source for that. But in, in all of these, you aren't going to see at the surface level, but the people that are the workers behind them, the people that are promoting it, financing it, and pushing it, these are the people from today's mystery schools that still exist. And, and there's multiple levels even to those schools. You don't say, oh, well, there's just a mystery school and that's it. No, it, each one is going to have multiple layers to it. Like I was referring to with esoteric and exoteric. There's going to be surface level stuff that you might see. You might see their sign on a building or something like that. Uh, but then there's going to be meetings that they have that the core of those people hold in a separate place. And then even amongst them is going to be another core of people that only may meet in a certain state or in a certain country. And a lot of these things, a lot of these schools aren't as simple as, say, the Masons. Uh, where they are, they've always been against self-promotion. 
So there's always been the saying, if you see one, ask one, is what they say. You might see that bumper sticker every now and then. Um, Masons, um, see one, ask one. That's how you become a member, get somebody to sponsor you. But a lot of these bigger, these deeper mystery schools, you know, I, I'll mention something that I've not even mentioned. A family uh, didn't even tell my girlfriend at the time that I was with about the situation. But for a number of months, once every two weeks, I would receive a one of those uh, yellow, big yellow envelopes in the mail. And it would be full of 20 to 80 pages of documentation in it. And trying to, well, you know, at first, like, people, they kind of have to work their way in the door with you, right? You got to start slow. You know, and then they start laying out the heavier information and the heavier information and then trying to pressure you, you know. And uh, some people call it, like, grooming, you know, is one expression that's used. But I, I was receiving that for a number of months from one of these schools that was trying to um, gain my desire to join. This is a nice way of putting it. Or be an initiate or something like that. Which I've never been a fan of that idea. Even though I know that, that there's a lot of these organizations that exist behind the scenes that people don't see the faces or names of that are really the ones running things and controlling things. And it really is these mystery schools that are doing it. And I said, when, when you start reading some of their documentation and comprehend their philosophies, then you start seeing those philosophies that they'll stand out to you when you see them in real life. Uh, one of the best organizations you can see some of these philosophies in uh, would be, I'd say maybe the World Health Organization, some of the organizations that are tied to them. They push a lot of those main philosophies. At the core of just about every one of them would also lay the hermetic principles. I would recommend looking up the hermetic principles. Um, and some of them sound totally legit. There's stuff that we have all been brought up with in life and never really questioned it. It's stuff that we assume as true. And some of them are, like cause and effect. Cause and effect is a perfect example of one of the hermetic principles. Even though within the hermetic principles as well, if you study the seven mirrors of the Essenes, you're going to see that included within those hermetic principles. Where do you think they all found them from? This is ancient knowledge. And this is the ancient knowledge that today's system wants to keep you from. They don't want you to be doing the inner work. They don't want you to be doing the great work. They want you to be taking the great pill. They want you to be going to your God, you know, God Pharma, God Mercury, God Hermes. They want you going there. They want, because this is a quick fix society. This is a microwave society. 
And so if you've got a problem mentally, you should be able to fix it as, as quick as you can heat up your hot chocolate in the microwave. That's, that's the core idea they want everybody to have instilled within them and how they want everybody to treat the events and the issues and the problems around them. If anybody has anything they want to add to this, uh, feel free. Uh, if you're here on talk show, raise your hand. Um, I'll bounce over and take a look at the chat. See if there's anything going over there. If anybody has a question or anything that they want to brought up. Um, I see a hand from Keith. And so, Keith, I'm going to unmute you. And uh, feel free. What have you got on your mind, brother? Are you able to hear me? Yes. <clears throat> yeah, with that, uh, it's very interesting to me that we talk about uh, self-help and people wanting a quick fix. When you look at the uh, hermetic principles, which I just recently started looking at, you look at karma and how you get back what you receive. So a lot of self-help rooted in quick fixes is not a karmic principle in my opinion, mainly because, for instance, with your health, you spend an entire lifetime damaging your body. You think that you should be able to take a couple of pills or, you know, fast or eat healthy for a couple of days, you know, to see remedy, whereas um, it makes more sense if it's a karmic principle that, you know, you got to put a lot more work in because you spent so much time damaging yourself. But that's my comment. Yep, you are correct. And it's interesting that you brought up, you know, just taking a bath. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's one thing is also, it's a, and it is good to do, you know, put Epsom salt in a bath. Yeah, it's good for your body. And there's a lot of those things that we practice today that people don't even realize why they practice them. Well, at around the time of the Essenes, there, there was another, I mean, today we might call it a mystery school, but at that time it was just another sect of people and another kind of religion offshoot and they were referred to as the bathers and they're big on bathing um and if your mind doesn't immediately click to john the baptist i don't know why it doesn't <laughs> but that's something he, they said that he may have been associated with was the bathers so there's a lot of these different groups that have existed over time All right. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add, Keith? There's that. That was it. Okay. And uh, I appreciate the input there. Uh, you know, a lot of these things are serious stuff to think about. Um, uh, did you raise your hand again? Or is that the old hand that was raised? Couldn't tell if it was the right hand or the left hand either time. But. Okay, I guess that was previous. If anybody has one of these uh, mystery schools or something like that that they want me maybe to delve into and show more about, I could probably do that. If you just put it down in the notes here or in the comments on either Facebook or in YouTube, I'll be happy to do that. Because there's so many things associated with these mystery schools that I guarantee touches every single one of us today 
in multiple ways that people don't even realize. We, we hear, for instance, about a lot of the technology that came out around the mid to late 1940s and 1950s and, and things that seemed like brand new to us. Uh, say, for instance, like the microwave. The microwave actually came out right after the turn of the 19th century, like uh, 1901, 1902, 1903, something like that. It was the microwave. So it wasn't even really that new of a technology. It had been around, and it just wasn't made available uh, for the peasants. And a lot of other things, though, did come out at the end of the 1940s because, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people would recognize with the mystery schools is this idea of Babylon and, say, Babylon Working, which was a project by L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons that was actually performed in the desert. And that was done in 1947. I believe it was like through August, maybe into October of 1947. And a lot of strange events started occurring right around that time. And, of course, Jack Parsons, uh, which is known for having started uh, JPL, which was called Jet Propulsion Laboratories, which most people would say didn't stand for Jet Propulsion Laboratories. <laughs> they, they said it stood for Jack Parsons Laboratories. But that came out with... The, the knowledge regarding, for instance, the jet engine. Well, nobody knew anything about that kind of technology at the time. And guess what? Neither did Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons didn't go to school for that kind of stuff. Uh, of course, he had always been the kid lighting off rockets in the backyard when he was young and blowing things up and that kind of stuff. But uh, the jet propulsion engine has a lot more to do with its effectiveness other than explosion. <laughs> it's, it's more of a um, matter of condensing air and forcing air. Yeah, really lays at the core of it. And, and nobody knew that stuff. Like I said, not even him. He didn't go to school for that kind of stuff. So where did Jack Parsons get this info from? And there's there so many other things also that came out around that time. Uh, gosh, that's another long list of things I made. Yeah, I recommend people just go to your uh, favorite great oracle, whether it's Google, Bing, DuckDuckGo, or whatever, and just look up new technology that came out, say, between 1947 and 1952. Give it a five-year window and take a look there because there's just – it's amazing, amazing so many of the things that we have today, like your touchscreen cell phone or a touchscreen computer, that technology came out then too. Although it really didn't come out to us until, you know, the past 10 years or so. But these are things that have been around for quite a while. And any of the scientists that are really in the know will tell you that the technology that you see today, they've already had for 50 years which means that the technology that we're probably going to see 50 years from now, they're already using it now. So there's this big question of where did this come from? And 
like I referenced, you know, the Babon Working Project in the desert with Jack Parsons and with L. Ron Hubbard, who is known for starting up Scientology and writing the book Dianetics. Uh, I read the book Dianetics, I think, when I was 12, 13 years old. <laughs> My dad was kind of surprised I had it. But this stuff has always kind of fascinated me. And so this topic is something that, that I really like looking at and something I've always wanted to talk about. But it being the correct time, didn't always feel like it was there. But now I kind of feel like this may be the correct time. <clears throat> and I just have so much wrapped around this that can show people how these things from these schools are being used maybe for us or we might want to think it's for us when actually these things are being used more against us than they are for us. I was listening recently to a meeting of one of these groups that uh, I guess you could put into the outer space camp of groups uh, this was several days ago and one of the things that they were talking about was that how they've been infiltrated by so many people and uh, I'm not going to mention the names but if you know some of the big names of people you hear like on YouTube or whatever the last five six years have been promoting uh, these lights in the sky kind of events and being in contact with aliens, that kind of thing. And they were talking about how they've been infiltrated by so many of those names, and so much of it has been commercialized, and there's so much infighting. But they said that they still had hope. And the reason why they had hope was because so many more people today are actually involved in video games than actually even watching videos. In that they felt, and this was the wording they used, they felt they could influence the psyche of humanity through these video games. That's big. That's not just big. That's scary. Something to keep in mind. Especially if yourself or the youth in your life around you are investing too much time in some of these games, stop and consider. That's the plan that they have. And I would say it's not just a plan they have for the future. I, I would say it's something already being done. That's why they have so much faith in it. Because it's something they've already been using and seeing success from. We have to realize that nothing of any great popularity or and no figure, no people that are really popular and big names that you hear happen organically. They're there because they're allowed to be there because they are serving a purpose. And that purpose is not necessarily always for the best. Uh, people, please contact me. Uh, let me know if there's an area of this that you want me to go into. I will expound on this some more next week. So I guess we can... Consider this episode one of examining the mystery schools, the mystery schools of old and the mystery schools that exist today.
And until next week, keep learning who you really are, where you're really from, and where you're really at. Because guess what? The mystery schools are hiding that from you. Good night, guys.